Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, numbers in Ontario intensive care units have increased uh, in the second wave and are at an alarming rate. What happens next? Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccination arrives in Canada. Who gets it? The Prime Minister is using COVID-19 to push through his policy on climate change. Good time or bad time? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Eileen, Scott's wife. Kurt was so excited about the vaccine today, he forgot to do his intro. He's got the brain fog without the COVID. However, he was a good boy and he did remember to wash his hands and wear his mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Now here's Scott Thompson. Alicia's standing by watching. She, are you jealous? Did you want to do that? Next time we can get you to do it if you want. Yes. To get up a bit earlier for that. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve ten. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the uh, station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. A milestone uh, for many on many occasions, uh, for many occasions, for many reasons. Uh, number one, week number forty, and uh, well, maybe maybe that should be number two. Number one is there's a vaccine. Uh, number two is it's week number forty, so just in time. Feel free to jump into the conversation. You can react to the podcast. Uh, it's waiting for you on Facebook and Twitter. You can also send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at nine hundred chml dot com, and the phone lines are always open at nine zero five six four five three two two one. Star nine nine hundred on your cell. Another big show coming up today. Uh, obviously, great news. Uh, the first person has been vaccinated. Uh, uh, we're uh, uh, a personal care worker, personal support worker, uh, Anita Quidanjan. It was the first person to uh, to get a needle, and it's you know it's exciting. It's, it's as exciting as you think. You know what it's like to get a needle. Except when uh, when Anita got hers, everybody applauded. So <laughs> that doesn't really happen when we get our shot. Although it certainly might this time. Uh, so good news. Uh, the first of uh, uh, doses, which I uh, enough, I guess, for uh, 15,000 people, 30,000 doses in total uh, are being put into arms uh, in Toronto and Ottawa uh, today. So great news uh, all around there. All right. Here is a clip of uh, the federal procurement minister, Anita Anand, in regard to what's going on today and the vaccine itself. Last night, I had the privilege to be on hand as some of the first COVID-19 vaccines arrived in this country. That shipment was part of the first 30,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech authorized vaccine. More shipments will follow shortly, with up to a total of 249,600 doses arriving by the end of this month alone. This is the first tranche of the 20 million doses that we have purchased from Pfizer to date. And let's hear from Cole Pinot. He was on the West Block uh, earlier on, and he is the CEO of Pfizer Canada. The common flu vaccine has those same indications that you mentioned. And as far as uh, uh, the risk of allergies, 
We do list all the products that are in our vaccine so that people can see if they have a history against any of those ingredients to know that it's contraindicated for use in those patients. All right, let's uh, bring in Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh. Can you hear me, Samantha? I can totally hear you. Oh, the wonders of modern technology. How are you today? I'm <laughs> doing very well. How are you on this uh, vaccination day? Uh, a pretty positive day, I'm guessing, uh, in your yeah. world, and everybody must be very excited about this. It's terribly exciting. I can't help but be a little bit anxious still, and I think I'm not the only healthcare worker feeling that way. We're so close to the end. We're so close to being able to get back to something that seems normal and something that seems healthier that it's easy to think, well, maybe I'll just make different decisions this holiday than I would have otherwise, right? The vaccine's already here. What and I'm, I can't have to say I'm a little bit anxious about what people are going to do over the holidays. You know, you bring up a very valid point. And, uh, you know, we were talking to some experts last week and, you know, many were predicting whether, you know, whatever ro- uh, role the vaccine plays in this in the next six months or, or, or not. Um, the the period following the holidays, maybe two to six weeks after the holidays, those are most likely to be the darkest hour of this pandemic. Would that be accurate? I think it's very, very likely. People are so tired of all the precautions that have rolled out over the last year, and they're so anxious to get back to normal. And the holidays are such a hard time for so many people anyways, that it just seems like a confluence of events that really has the potential to set us off course. Have you, do you think we've accepted the fatigue and accepted that, you know, we're going to drop our guard? Or, or do you think people are still getting the message, hey, we got to be careful here? I mean, obviously, with areas going down into lockdown today, we saw lots of action at shopping malls over the weekend. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, it's obvious we've relaxed our guard, we've lowered the guard, but do you think people are okay with that? And that's the problem. You know, I think people, no. I'm going to rephrase that. I think some people are okay with it until it affects them personally, but I think many people are still trying. And the thing is, you know, if I could say one thing to the people listening, it's that throughout all of this, the healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but nurses and PSWs and RTs and everyone who takes care of you has shown up with courage and compassion to share their expertise and to take care of people. And we've been called heroes and heroines and It's nice, but we're also human, and we've been under enormous physical, mental, and emotional strain. So if people, Ontarians, could do what they've done so many times before this year and just muster up the resilience and the reserve to do what they can to curb that spread ahead of us and keep us from getting to that 10,000 worst-case scenario that's being potentially predicted, that's what everyone has a moral and ethical responsibility to do. And I know it's hard. I do. I really do. I miss my parents, too. But we're so close. Let's get everyone we can across that finish line. And, uh, you know, you bring up a valid point, and we've been trying to ram this uh, home on the show for the last several weeks, is, you know, a lot of people are feeling, well, you know, especially perhaps if you're younger, this isn't going to affect me. I mean, you know, if I get it, I'll recover and such. But that's not the issue here. The issue is here that some people become very sick, and they clog up hospital space. They take up space in the healthcare system and and overtax that system. So surgeries, uh, things that are normally done cannot be done whether you know you have a heart attack or accidents or what have you that's where the problem is and and i'm not sure people are getting that message 
Absolutely. So I would say to the younger people who are feeling a little bit blasé about all of this, and not all of them are, but to those who are, there's two things to take home. First of all, there well, three things, I guess. First of all, there are younger people dying. We've had deaths in the 20 to 30 group, 30 to 40 group, 40 to 50 group. It's not just the 70 and up. The second thing is that we're not talking a lot about the people who don't die, but there are a lot of people out there who are suffering long-term consequences, and we don't know how long it's going to take to resolve. Trouble breathing, various other issues that just don't go away once the virus is gone. And then the third thing is, as you've mentioned, this issue with the hospital resources. We started this year with the government making a pledge to try and reduce backlog. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and backlogs done anything but reduce. But when those systems are overwhelmed, when the ICU beds are full and the ORs can't run, that means so much care isn't happening. And it's things that might affect younger or older people. It's cardiac surgeries and cancer care, but it's also preventative care like vaccines and pap smears and colonoscopies. It's This is where the risk of young women having missed breast cancer comes in or young men getting sepsis, which is a bad infection, and not being able to get access as fast as they should. So we really do all have a stake in this game. You know, you bring up a valid point, too, and we're hearing more and more about those long haulers, people who have theoretically recovered from this but are still feeling that fog, are, are still certainly not at 100%. And as you mentioned, there are some concerns about how this affects the neurological system and long-term uh, brain function and such, which we just don't have the answers to those questions at this point. Absolutely. This is what living on the front edge of a leading scientific breakthrough looks like, right? This is a new virus. It's, the long-term effects aren't known. And it's an exciting time for some, in some ways because of the collaboration we've seen across multiple technologies and medicine, for the collaboration we've seen between countries, um, different groups. But it's also a terrifying time for many people because we simply can't tell you what the future is going to bring. And today, so uh, we're seeing the very first uh, uh, personal support workers, uh, personal care workers being vaccinated today. Uh, it just happened on, on live television there uh, uh, a few minutes ago. As we mentioned, we're heading towards January and February, which theoretically could, could present a problem with new cases and such. Where do these two lines intersect? I mean, we have the vaccinations arriving, but obviously they're very small amounts that we, we certainly have haven't got to a point where like a flu shot we're doing any sort of mass uh, vaccination of any point so where do these two where does that rise up in january and february yeah. and then the finally the vaccines level this out where do they meet so it's such a great question and the answer as to where they meet really depends on what people do but the information that we have is that we are looking at everyone who wants to be vaccinated being vaccinated by september So that is a lot closer than it was six months ago, but it's still really far away. And the televised vaccination today, even hearing about it, knowing that some of those PSWs are a little bit more protected than they were six months ago. I mean, it's it's almost tear worthy. It is very, very important. And it's an emotional day for many. But as you said, the case counts are climbing. They're continuing to climb. I haven't seen today's numbers yet, but Everything keeps going up. We had 250 in the ICUs the last time I checked. And it is, we need to get people vaccinated and safe before we can relax the precautions. And so that means that while we're waiting for those two curves to intersect, we need Ontarians to stay away from other people, wear a mask, wash their hands, make 2020 the year you celebrate the holidays at home. 
and make 2021 the year you travel around the world and celebrate with the rest of your family. <laughs> well put. Uh, so, again, here we are in the second wave. We talked about that critical number of, of how many in ICU beds and such. How do we compare to the first wave in the second wave that we're in now? So it's an interesting comparison because the curves are very different. It's a slower uptake in this first wave, but we are seeing very similar responses. And as we know from the first wave, we didn't hit the scary numbers that a lot of people were worried about. And I think that's part of what is making people a little bit less concerned. They've already had that surge of adrenaline and the big fear. And most people, unfortunately not the long-term care residents, but most people that people who aren't healthcare workers have access to and speak to, did fine. And so people are a little bit more reassured. But what we do see from that second curve and what we've seen from around the world is that the precautions that we keep talking about and contact tracing and being able to really have access to those COVID tests is what's going to make the difference between whether the apex of the second curve is lower or higher than the apex of the first curve. We could still very much outdistance the deaths and hospitalizations that we saw the first time around. So uh, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So what if I say I'm masking, I'm trying to social distance, I'm washing my hands? Why can't I go out? I mean, as, as long as I'm doing the protocol, can I still go out? So here's the thing. The protocol reduces the risk. It doesn't drop it to an absolute zero. You going out increases the risk. It doesn't raise it to an absolute certainty. And this is where everything becomes a gamble and a roll of the dice. And you need to make decisions. Everyone needs to make decisions about what risk they're prepared to accept. And it becomes hard because the personal motivation to see other people and interact in the world freely, that can't be understated. It's so important and we all miss it so much. But I don't know about you. If I find out later that I was responsible for a breakout of the epidemic that cost people their lives, Mm -hmm. that would never be worth whatever I did that day. And the truth is you'll never know. So every time that you go out, you are potentially responsible for something terrible. And it's a horrible weight to put on people, and I'm sorry to do it, but it's what we need to be hearing right now very clearly is that we are not out of the woods yet. We all have power and responsibility to avert the outcomes. And this is when we need to buckle down, lean in, and make it through to the other side. You know, and when you think about it, doctor, there's not much more we can do in regard or governments can do in regard to other than driving that message home right the way through to the holiday, uh, because, you know, we're, 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 we're other than a total lockdown, which we're almost close to anyway, it certainly are in some hot spots. There's not much more government can do, can they, other than just hammer that message home? Well, you know, that's a, an interesting question because in other countries where we've where people value personal freedoms less, uh, they've certainly done a lot more. And yeah. they've seen rapid, rapid changes in their uh, rates of infection, and they've gotten control of the virus much faster. But we're Canadian. There are things that we value, and I and many healthcare workers are praying that our values for personal freedom and our values for social responsibility are meeting in a good place. Hmm. So do you think, could you see between now and, say, Christmas, the, everybody just, all right, that's it, we're, it's getting out of control, we're locking it down? I, you know, I wouldn't personally mind that. I've told my parents uh, to basically lock themselves indoors for the next six to eight weeks. I said, go get your groceries this week, and then after that, wait yeah. to see the numbers come up and come down, because 
they're older and I want to see them once they have a chance to get their vaccine. I want to do something in March, April or May that we couldn't do this whole year. I want to get together with my family and my kids and do wonderful things. And the way we do that is by protecting ourselves and protecting others to the utmost of our capacity today. I know a family that's doing their uh, Christmas celebrations uh, in the summer. <laughs> it's like Christmas in August, something like that. If, of course, it's idea. possible. Why not? Yeah. Christmas in July. Idea. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Samantha Hill has been with us, president of the Ontario Medical Association, talking about the arrival of vaccine and everything COVID. Uh, Samantha, thanks so much for the time. Be well. No worries. Be well. Stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Been doing the COVID show for 40 weeks now. Nimble. You know, we can, we can pivot whenever we need to. Taking press conferences here and there, pulling them out of the sky, just like this, that, and the other. And for, uh, remember, for months there, we took the uh, prime minister coming out of the cottage, the black cottage door. And then uh, then it's a premier every day at 1 o'clock taking him. And then the ledge uh, is closed down for the holidays, so they stopped those. And then they said, but wait, we'll do one more. We'll do one more. We'll uh, we'll we'll do one when the the vaccine arrives. So, uh, we, and it was supposed to go at one, and then it was delayed till one thirty, and then uh, the premier came on and said this. Well, good afternoon, folks. What we witnessed today is a massive step forward in the fight against this deadly virus. I want to thank Kevin Smith at UHN and his entire team along with the five frontline healthcare heroes. Thanks to them, we were the first in Canada and one of the first in North America to administer this vaccine. I said we would be ready and we are. Make no mistake, there's a long road ahead of us, but what this represents is hope and proof that this pandemic will come to an end. God bless Anita and the other healthcare heroes and God bless the people of Ontario. Thank you. Wait. Whoa, what? Wait, 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 wait. Where you go? Where you going? Hey, whoa, 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 wait. Come here. Come back here. What, 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 what? No questions, no Q&A, no here's what happened. Uh, how did it go? Dry ice jokes, anything? So, yeah, we, we, we waited for that, um, which is, you know, pretty much as uh, informative as, as playing the clip of someone actually getting vaccinated. That's Crippin Radio, too, because, you know, uh, there's nothing more riveting than watching a person get a vaccination. Do we have that clip? This is the actual historic very first vaccination. That's Anita Quidangen, personal care worker, getting the first. So, and that was, I think, as long as uh, Premier Doug Ford's news conference. <laughs> I think the same length of time as it took for Anita to get the jab at the arm is, I think, how long, how long the Premier spoke today. So I'm glad we took the time to do that. I, I'm, I'm glad we canceled the guest. So we could have taken that because you wouldn't want to miss that. Thank you to everybody. God bless the people of Ontario. 
All right. Uh, anyway, so uh, good news. Uh, the initial doses have arrived. Uh, looks like we're going to get 6,000 in Ontario. Uh, I divide that in half, obviously, because it's got to be um, uh, given in two doses. So uh, 2,500. Uh, I'm not sure where the. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it's broken down, but uh, uh, initially uh, 2,500. Uh, initially, uh, 2,500 uh, healthcare workers, frontline workers, will be getting uh, these initial doses. So, uh, good news all around for. Uh, those concerned and anxious about COVID-19. However, we cannot drop the guard. We have to remember uh, that it still will be some time before everybody's vaccinated and the protocols, the masking, uh, the social distancing, all of that still applies, especially as we head into the holidays. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Susan Wasserman is with us, Professor of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Division, Director of Medicine, Clinical Immunology and Allergy at McMaster University and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well i'm doing fine thank you so your thoughts we were all watching earlier uh the first personal support worker uh get her injection a pretty historic day here in the country no it certainly is i mean you know it's an amazing sort of outcome how all of this has been rolled out so quickly so we hope that this spells the beginning uh, of the end of this pandemic, we know that we still have to keep all these measures in place, all the social distancing and masking and everything that we're doing now, but clearly a good development. Uh, let's talk about something that was of concern uh, prior to the weekend, and obviously this is your expertise and you can help us with this. There was some concern over allergic reactions to this. Can you give us any kind of update on this and perhaps ease some fears? Sure. Uh We initially heard about this at the time of the rollout uh, in the UK, and I guess for us as allergists, uh, when a massive sort of undertaking of immunization is undertaken like this, you will encounter people who may have allergic reactions to vaccines. I can't say that we know any more now than we did, let's say, last week when all of this started. These two individuals happen to have other allergies. We don't know specifically what they were. All we know is that within the vaccine itself, there is really nothing that puts generally food or other allergic people at risk. They don't contain food proteins like egg or peanut. They don't contain latex. The only ingredient that we really do have some familiarity uh, familiarity with is something called polyethylene glycol, which is used in some of these vaccines and to which there is a described allergy. So at this point in time, we don't really have a lot of information about risk factors in any other allergy beyond that. So uh, that being said, if you have some sort of a, and, you know, we have heard the line actually severe allergies. So, I mean, you know, to the point where allergies are an issue for you, would they be recommended as not to to take this at this point? If you were a a doctor of someone and they were saying, you know, I got a severe allergy, should I be taking this or not? You know what, that's sort of the question of the day. I can tell you what I'm telling my patients, and we certainly see people with all degrees of allergy severity. 
for the usual food allergies, allergic rhinitis, asthma, venom allergy, my message to everybody is get vaccinated. There's nothing that I'm aware of that puts these people especially at risk, at least not now. What rolls out in the future as we gather more information? Clearly, we're in early days. I may change that recommendation a little bit. But for now, the message is don't avoid getting vaccinated. And if you do have any history of severe allergies, speak to your allergist, speak to your health care provider. There are very few underlying allergies, maybe none, where I tell my patients avoid vaccination. What I tell them is come and speak to me. We assess the risk versus benefit. And if they're especially nervous, I'll vaccinate them personally. Hmm. And what about seniors in a situation that might have allergies or would that be incredibly rare? No, seniors actually can have any allergies, same as the younger age groups. And they also may have other comorbid diseases, the heart disease and whatever, that places them at increased risk. But my message to them would not be any different. At this point, the benefit versus risk of these vaccinations, the benefit, of, you know, appears to outweigh the risks. If you do have concerns, speak to your health care provider. But for the most part, I consider these to be safe in the vast majority of allergic individuals, with the exception of this polyethylene glycol, which some individuals may know that they have an allergy to and which is present in the vaccine. But that's rare. And obviously, we saw the UK start with this last week, and that's when those, uh, I think, first two initial cases of this came up. Uh, the U.S. obviously starting max vac- vaccination uh, as well today. So if that is the case, you'd think we would hear pretty quickly about this, would we not? I would say so. I mean, you know, we're going to have enough coming up uh, in the very near future with the U.S. getting its vaccination programs on board with Canada and, of course, with the continuation in the U.K. and other places. You know, the message is that as scientists, as clinicians, as the public, we need to continue to monitor everybody and see what evolves. So one would hope that we find out about any evolving problems sooner rather than later. So obviously a a small amount of uh, vaccine arriving last night and and being uh, administered today or over the course of the day, uh, I guess. Uh, We've talked to many experts who have said they're very concerned about after the holiday, after Christmas, after uh, everyone has finished celebrating that uh, two weeks, three weeks after that, uh, the, you know, middle of January right through to February could be the darkest hour of this uh, of this pandemic just with with human behavior and, and how things may may spike where is the intersection between the limited vaccine that we do have and the rising cases when will they intersect well look you know i sort of have the same kind of uh, concerns that the other experts that you spoke to this morning it's true that we do have limited amount of vaccination that's going to escalate 
uh, I'd say probably in the next couple of weeks and more so. But whatever, until everybody is vaccinated, and vaccines take time to work, you don't see protective Mm. antibody immediately. And it does take two doses, really, for the optimal amount of protection. So you have to keep in measures everything that we've been told to do, which is the social distancing and to avoid large crowds. And, you know, there's no question that the holiday breeds a lot of get-togethers and that people may break the rules, so it won't surprise anybody if the number of cases escalate in spite of the vaccine program. Uh, We've also heard reports of Bell's palsy involving this. Can you debunk any of this or give us us any information on that at all? You know what? I just heard that for the first time myself. Uh, There's no question that with any vaccination, we sometimes hear about these inflammatory nerve conditions. There's nothing in this vaccine in particular that's been associated with a Bell's palsy, except, you know, vaccination in general, uh, if you look back in history, has sometimes been associated. Luckily, a Bell's palsy uh, is short. Well, uh, it's something that's self-limited. Most people do not hang on to symptoms, uh, you know, uh, in an ongoing way. But at this point in time, there's nobody who we can identify as being uh, at particular risk and no ingredient that's responsible. Obviously, this is, uh, you know, a a new, uh, not only a new vaccine, a new pandemic, something that a new coronavirus, something that, uh, you know, we haven't really seen before other than perhaps SARS. Um, And many are concerned uh, how this could affect us in the long run or even whether, you know, you're a long hauler who uh, has perhaps recovered from this but still having lingering symptoms of some way or even those that were asymptomatic and then later have perhaps neurological issues or such. How concerned are you about how this could affect us moving forward? And I guess these are questions we won't get answered and, 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 you know, until time tells us. You know what? It's a valid question. There's no question that, you know, this virus has sort of kept us humble. We have people who are asymptomatic. We have people with mild symptoms who get over it very quickly. And we run the whole gamut of people with very severe, life-threatening symptoms and, of course, even death. But what has been shown is that there are people who do have lingering symptoms which are ongoing. This can be anything from fatigue to being unable to concentrate properly to sleep disturbance to persistent shortness of breath. At this point, time is going to tell, and that's why it's so important as a medical community for us to keep monitoring. Won't it be fascinating a year from now to see how this all plays out and what we'll learn from it and and, and where we are, for example, a year from now? Uh, Sorry, could you repeat that? It's going to be fascinating. Sorry, we might have dropped out there. It's going to be fascinating to see once this vaccination starts to roll out where we will be at the end of 2021, uh, what we've learned, how much we have uh, changed our our habits or what have you, and, and whether this is completely over or whether we're still living with some sort of residue of this. 
Yeah. You know what, look, I would even be surprised uh, if by the end of 2021, we can sort of throw up our hands and say it's all over. This has affected so many people and so many families, and there will be lingering effects, not only on the medical side, but, you know, people have lived in a separated fashion. Mm. Education has been protected, you know, mm. In terms of uh, just meetings that we attend and whatever, things have been so socially distanced, I can't see that getting back to normal so quickly. Not unless vaccination rolls out uh, in such a way that almost everybody gets it and we see some dramatic effects. But I think that some of these things are here to stay. You know, the, the gathering of very large groups may take a long time to come back. Uh, travel will be slow, uh, you know, hand washing and these sorts of other hygiene measures, I think, are with us for a long time, maybe permanently. Obviously, a lot are uh, many uh, experts concerned with the holidays approaching. What advice do you have for those that are, you know, obviously fatigued with the protocol and, and what have you, but what we need to do to get us over this last hurdle? Yeah, no, I think that the holidays are clearly a time at risk, yet it's a time that everybody does want to get together and see family and whatever. Whatever you do, practice safe behavior as well as, you know, as well as possible. Whatever has been recommended in terms of social distancing, crowd avoidance, hand hygiene, I think it's important to maintain this. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of Zooming as families and things. Keep it up during the holiday season. It's really no time to let our guard down for now, even with a vaccine. And get vaccinated. When your time comes, uh, as far as I'm concerned, benefit far outweighs the risk and go get vaccinated. What uh, is there anybody that is, is should not be vaccinated here? Uh, obviously, there'll be all, you know, a certain, uh, you know, per- personal situations where someone may not uh, may not be able to get this. But I know, uh, for example, it's only been tested on those above 18. It's not something for the kids. Do you see that changing? Yeah, I think that it will change, actually, as we get more information in these age groups. It's true that clinical trials can't cover everybody when it comes to testing the efficacy in these vaccines. So, you know, it's got a certain age of indication. Health Canada and other groups have already delineated the groups who need it most. Uh, But, you know, as time goes on, these other age groups, I think, will fall into place as well. And who shouldn't get vaccinated is going to be a personal decision between that Mm. person and their physician. If they're truly very immunocompromised for whatever reason, they may make a decision with their healthcare professional not to be vaccinated. But there's no absolute contraindication at the present time, with the exception of allergy perhaps to this PEG ingredient that I've mentioned that may make somebody uh, avoid vaccination. Do you think we'll have to go through this again in a year or two? In other words, this is something you get like a flu shot uh, or will this have staying power? Again, these are questions I'm sure we don't know yet. Well, you know what? It's a very good question because we really don't have information on the long-term efficacy of these vaccines. So if the vaccine changes, do we need to develop another vaccine? Will another injection as time goes on be necessary? These are the sorts of answers that continued studies are going to show us. But, uh, you know, as best uh, as we know now, this doesn't seem to confer long-term protection, though we don't have all the answers.
Dr. Susan Wasserman has been with us, Professor of Clinical Immunology and Allergy Division, uh, Director of Medicine, Clinical Immunology and Allergy at McMaster University. Susan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Be well yourself and have a good, safe holiday. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on. And uh, you might remember at uh, the end of last week, the Prime Minister unveiled uh, a quite extensive uh, climate change policy. Uh, Many were questioning, you know, is this the right time to be doing this when we're uh, in the middle of a pandemic? And and, uh, although a vaccination certainly is on the horizon, um, we we certainly aren't uh, at the point of recovery uh, yet. But uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say last week in regard to his uh, climate change policy. If we trust scientists with our health, as we do, then we must also trust their research and their expertise when it comes to other existential threats. And that includes climate change. There is no vaccine against a polluted planet. With global consumers and investors alike demanding and rewarding climate action, our trading partners and economic competitors are in this race. Like us, they know that the cleaner your economy, the faster and stronger it will grow. All right, let's bring in Jasmine Moulton. Canadian Taxpayers Federation is with us now. Jasmine, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Wow, uh, there's some pretty big numbers in uh, in this latest uh, uh, policy announced by uh, the Prime Minister. Um, is, it this, is this the good time to be doing this sort of thing? Absolutely not. So not only is the national debt spiraling toward uh, past $1 trillion, which is historic in and of itself, uh, you know, taxpayers right now all across the country are struggling to, in some cases, put food on the table, heat their homes. Sometimes it's a decision between those two things to be skyrocketing the cost of everything, home heating, groceries, in one of the worst economic downturns on record, just seems like terrible policy. It seems like a bad dream, not an actual government announcement that happened on Friday. It seems uh, uh, the Prime Minister is using the pandemic to sell this. If we believe in the science of a vaccine, we have to believe in the science of climate change. What is your response? Well, I think a lot of Canadians, most Canadians, certainly myself, care about climate change and believe you know, that it's happening, it's real, it's scientific, it's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that the carbon tax is a good solution to that. In fact, they're basing the whole federal carbon taxes based off of the British Columbia example, because BC introduced one back in 2008, so over 10 years ago. But uh, we were told that in British Columbia, if they had a carbon tax, it would reduce emissions. But what we've seen is since they introduced their carbon tax over 10 years ago, their emissions have continued to go up. Um, by more than 7% since 2008. So a carbon tax does not even reduce emissions. But even if it did, which it doesn't, it wouldn't really make a global impact. China will um, make up any sort of progress that uh, Canada gives up in that time in a matter of months. So Canada's global emissions contribution is about 1.6% of global greenhouse gases. Um, China is still building coal plants. So why Canada would decimate its own economy while, you know, China makes up the difference in, again, a matter of weeks um, is beyond me. 
Many are saying now that China is moving towards more cleaner energy and renewable energy, or are we to believe that? Well, Canadian uh, pension funds are investing in some coal plants that are currently being built in China. So, again, uh, this really does not make sense. Um, you know, they can say whatever they want, but um, certainly they're um, they're still contributing so significantly. They're the largest global contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but then you have other countries like India as well and the United States. Um, contributing quite significantly too. So Canada, again, is only at 1.6% of global emissions. That's not to say that we should do nothing, but uh, we could have a far more significant impact on global emissions if instead of uh, a carbon tax, which again, allows our emissions to continue to go up, it, it's fake environmental policy. It might make people feel good, but it's not good for the environment. Um, you know, if we were to sell some of our cleaner natural gas to countries like India or China that might rely on dirtier sources currently of energy, um, that would do far more to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. So I would really emphasize for your listeners who clearly care about the environment, uh, you know, a carbon tax is not good environmental policy. It's treacherous economic policy, um, but it doesn't even help the environment. If we're serious about global warming uh, and climate change, we need a serious environmental policy. The carbon tax is not one. Many have said, though, that the carbon tax is the best way out of all the different ways. This is the best way to do this. Well, I would tell them that, uh, you know, in Ontario, for example, we saw carbon, we saw greenhouse gas emissions go down for the 20 years before we had the carbon tax. Um, and then when we saw in British Columbia, they had a carbon tax and their emissions increased. So, you know, if your goal is to reduce emissions, uh, the carbon tax has been proven in Canada to not be a good way to do that. And the parliamentary budget officer even said that, you know, it would need to be set at $300 a ton to meet our Paris Agreement targets. Uh, the government uh, on Friday announced that they're moving it from it's currently at $30 a ton. They're moving it up to $170 a ton. But the parliamentary budget officer has already said that that is not enough to uh, to meet our, our targets. So, um, you know, again, this really is not about the environment. It's about revenue for the government. Uh, so how do you reduce emissions and address this problem uh, without taxing the bejeebers out of everyone? Well, uh you know, in Ontario, like uh, I said, our emissions went down quite substantially before the carbon tax was introduced. Um, there are, uh, for example, like nuclear, other sources of energy you could use. Um, but again, the most important thing to remember is that uh, climate change and global warming is a global problem. So we're not going to solve it alone here in Canada. Even if our emissions went to zero tomorrow, which nobody would want, uh, because that would mean that our economy, everything had stopped in the country, uh, you know, they'd continue going up around the world. So really, we need to work with international partners um, and some of the biggest emitters in the planet. Thankfully, Canada has some cleaner energy sources that it can offer that would be positive for our economy and also positive for reducing global emissions around the world that we could offer to other countries, the largest emitters, like I said, China and India. The head of the Green Party of Ontario said that uh, anything that this costs you, you will get it all back in some form, in a form of a credit. 
<laughs> so that's quite uh, a silly. Anyone who claims that this is revenue neutral is lying because if you look at the fall economic statement, which the federal government released in November, just a week or two ago, they say that they're going to bring in $4.3 billion in carbon tax revenue this fiscal year alone. Even if they issued $4.3 billion back in rebates, what they're not saying is that they collected GST on top of the carbon tax. It's a tax on tax. Uh, so when you pay for the carbon tax at the pump, you're paying GST on top of the carbon tax. So they're going to bring in $250 million of their portion, the 5% of GST that they charge on the carbon tax, that they will not be rebating. So that's absolutely false, that it's revenue neutral. And if you look at farmers, for example, the CFIB did a survey of them last year. The average farmer paid nearly $14,000 in federal carbon tax charges. No farmer is getting a $14,000 rebate check from the federal government. So this is causing the cost of groceries to go up, home heating to go up, and there's no way that they would possibly uh, rebate all of it, especially, as I mentioned, because they're charging GST on top of it. Many have uh, many who are supported, uh, supporters of this policy said, um, you know, obviously when the pandemic started, we saw um, uh, the demand for energy go way down uh, because people were staying at home. Uh, obviously, all you have to do is drive around southern Ontario to realize that people aren't staying at home anymore. Um, you know, and but as we're stuck in this global pandemic, this is the time for a reset, that this is the time to to, as the prime minister says, build back better. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, it's really quite, uh, I think, telling if people rejoice in the decrease in emissions that we saw over the past year. Um, there have been multiple uh other crises, you know, businesses closing, people losing their life savings, uh, suicides, overdoses. There's a lot of other um, societal harms that happen when you have these massive periods of economic turmoil. And when, uh, you know, we saw this was the largest period of economic devastation in our our country's history. Um, So I don't think that that's anything uh, to celebrate. If, uh, you know, if anything, we really need to get the economy back on track so that uh, people can be back at work. And that does come with uh, with some emissions. But look, there are many ways to be environmentally friendly and economically sustainable. Um, the carbon tax does neither. Uh, people like to, some critics like to say that it's all about the economy, that we shouldn't care about the, uh, the environment. But those two things are not mutually exclusive. But the problem is with the carbon tax is that it's all downside. There's no positive environmental benefit to it because as we've seen time and time again in Canada, emissions have continued to go up under the carbon tax and they'll continue to go up under this increased carbon tax. Um, so it's really just all all downside uh, from here. But I, I myself am from grew up in the country, you know, between uh, fields on either side of my house and, and my parents you know, have no choice when they have to get to work. They can't take public transit. They can't bike or walk. They need to drive. And, and you know, when we were kids after school, they'd have to drive us to our extracurriculars. So there are, there's a real uh, urban-rural divide here with the carbon tax because there are many people who can't make those behavioral changes, um, you know, short of moving into a city and giving up urban uh, rural life entirely. Um, so it really is divisive policy, and it, it's, it's, you know, bad really all around. 
What about the argument this creates lots of jobs? I mean, you can either create the jobs in the uh, petroleum industry or you can create jobs in, in renewable energy. Well, this government has a dismal record when it comes to job creation. Whenever a politician says they're creating jobs, everyone should be very worried because if we look at their track record, Justin Trudeau in the Strategic Innovation Fund, it cost $2.3 billion. It was supposed to, he said it would create 56,000 jobs. It produced 11,000. So that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that the government is spending per one job. And again, they've taken that from other uh, productive companies, from companies that are actual job creators. They've taken money and resources from them to have their own little pet projects funded. We saw Trudeau also gave over, Trudeau and Doug Ford jointly gave $590 million to the Ford Motor Company to produce electric vehicles. And that's in Oakville. They're going to retool their plant for EV vehicle production. Uh, once that plant is retooled, 400 fewer workers will be required. So it's unclear how spending all of this money on Justin Trudeau's uh, environmental pet projects, they're not creating jobs. He's, he's, it's quite economically destructive, actually. Um, we, we've talked at length on this show how life will change post-COVID-19, how you know we'll learn lessons from this. Um, wouldn't you say, or that's what he is trying to sell here is that, you know, this is, this is a a, a turning point. This is a pivoting point for society. This is now how we have to do this. Um, is that not the road to recovery? Will that speed it up or slow it down? So following his uh, announcement on Friday that he's jacking up the carbon tax in the middle of the worst economic downturn on record, uh, by 2030 now, p- uh, prices at the pumps for one liter of gasoline will go up by 40 cents. That's how life is going to change. This is going to add uh, a lot of money. Every time you fill up at the pumps, groceries will be more expensive. It's unclear how, you know, businesses are struggling right now. Families are struggling right now. It's unclear how making everything in their life more expensive is going to help them to get back on their feet. Taxes are, are already the biggest cost facing the average Canadian family. We already pay about 45% of our income to different levels of government in taxation. Um, so by the government taking more and more out of taxpayers' pockets, that is not the solution. If anything, they need to get their hands out of our pockets. Uh, we, we're not looking for handouts. We just you know, want to get back to work. Um, and so that would be the type of recovery that really I'd be looking for, as opposed to Justin Trudeau um, doubling down on his political priors. These were all things that he wanted to do before the pandemic. And it's quite telling that now he's using the pandemic as an excuse to just double down. Uh, obviously, this is all around uh, Paris Accord goals and, and, and such uh, that have been set. Is this all just smoke and mirrors? Because it appears any goals that we set, we never hit anyway. I think so. There was actually a survey that came out that said, you know, a quite a high percentage of Canadians would like to be seen as environmentally conscious. Well, the wording there would like to be seen as really indicates virtue signaling. We want people to think that we're being environmentally friendly. Yeah. Um, and that's really what the carbon tax is. Uh, you know, we're paying uh we're paying a price for it every time we buy groceries or fill up at the pumps. Um, but when you see that our emissions continue to go up, uh, global warming under this, uh, the carbon tax will not be stopped. Um, you have to say at some point, you know, virtue signaling is not a serious 
climate change policy. If this government were serious about it, um, A, they'd acknowledge that this is a global problem that is not going to be solved in Canada. Again, I can't emphasize enough that, you know, we're at about 1.5, 1 1.6% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, what about per capita, saying, though? What about per capita as Canadians where we're polluting more than most think? Um, I can't. I don't have that uh, data off available uh, at, at the top of my head. Um, but I think, really, Canada does have some really great industry here. We have some great minds. And I think that we could have some innovative technology solutions that we could also offer around the world. Um, you know, carbon capture technology for would be one example. Um, but you really don't help those businesses grow through a high taxation environment. Um, you know, there's so much red tape uh, here in Canada and such high uh, rates of taxation all around. The carbon tax is just one example that, you know, if you want to foster that growth, that um, culture of innovation here, right here in Canada, and then we can export our uh, techno- technological solutions around the world. Um, you know, a high taxation situation is not the way the way to do that. The government really needs to stop, um, you know, playing with the economy as if they're the hands controlling the marionettes. Um, they've spent a lot of money and, uh, you know, the highest deficit in the whole world but we have the highest unemployment at the same time. So I think that that should tell people, you know, government spending does not equal jobs. Um, there's, the government does not create jobs. The private sector, businesses, families uh, create jobs, uh, not the government. So I think it's really dangerous rhetoric when Trudeau is trying to convince taxpayers, you know, give me some more money and, uh, and I, I can create jobs. We haven't seen that transpire. So you're convinced this is just another revenue stream. This is just another revenue stream. You touch on Canadian sensitivity to climate change. They'll write you a check. Absolutely. Like we saw, even if they did rebate the entirety of the revenue generated from the carbon tax, uh, which they don't even plan to, um, even if they did, they're generating hundreds of millions of dollars in GST, a tax on tax on top of the carbon tax that they will not um, not be rebating whatsoever. So absolutely. And they're starved for revenue. If you look, um, but again, the government doesn't have a revenue problem. It has a spending problem. Justin Trudeau mm. is spending $1.8 billion a day, but he doesn't have the cash for it. So 60% of that, over a billion dollars every day, goes onto the nation's credit card. We already, we're going to owe about $26,000 worth of federal debt. Um, he's added 10000 to the debt that we owe. Um, each alone this year. So it's really a, a dangerous time. It's not, but again, it's not a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. And Justin Trudeau needs to stop taxing us in this economic downturn. And instead, he just needs to get his spending under control. Jasmine Moulton has been with us, Canadian uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Prime Minister talking about hiking uh, the federal carbon tax uh, in the next 10 years as uh, he unveils his climate policy, many questioning uh, if this is the appropriate time to be doing that. Jasmine, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.